brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, there's a lot of material in this 34th article of the Belgic Confession, so we'll read it and jump right into the um, discussion of it. We believe and confess that Jesus Christ, who is the end of the law, has made an end by the shedding of his blood, of all other sheddings of blood which men could or would make as a propitiation or satisfaction for sin, and that he, having abolished circumcision which was done with blood, has instituted the sacrament of baptism instead thereof, by which we are received into the Church of God and separated from all other people and strange religions that we may wholly belong to him whose mark and ensign we bear, and which serves as a testimony to us that he will forever be our gracious God and Father. Therefore he has commanded all those who are his to be baptized with pure water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, thereby signifying to us that as water washes away the filth of the body when poured upon it, and is seen on the body of the baptized when sprinkled upon him. So does the blood of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, internally sprinkle the soul, cleanse it from its sins, and regenerate us from children of wrath unto children of God. Not that this is effected by the external water, but by the sprinkling of the precious blood of the Son of God, who is our Red Sea, through which we must pass to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh, that is, the devil, and to enter into the spiritual land of Canaan. The ministers, therefore, on their part, administer the sacrament and that which is visible, but our Lord gives that which is signified by the sacrament, namely the gifts and invisible grace, washing, cleansing, and purging our souls of all filth and unrighteousness, renewing our hearts and filling them with all comfort, giving unto us a true assurance of his fatherly goodness, putting on us the new man, and putting off the old man with all his deeds. We believe, therefore, that every man who is earnestly studious of obtaining life eternal ought to be baptized but once with this only baptism, without ever repeating the same, since we cannot be born twice. Neither does this baptism avail us only at the time when the water is poured upon us and received by us, but also through the whole course of our life. Therefore, we detest the error of the Anabaptists who are not content with the one only baptism they have once received, and moreover condemn the baptism of the infants of believers who we believe ought to be baptized and sealed with the sign of the covenant, as the children in Israel formerly were circumcised upon the same promises which are made unto our children. And indeed, Christ shed his blood no less for the washing of the children of believers than for adult persons. And therefore they ought to receive the sign and sacrament of that which Christ has done for them. As the Lord commanded in the law that they should be made partakers of the sacrament of Christ's suffering and death shortly after they were born, by offering for them a lamb, which was a sacrament of Jesus Christ. Moreover, what circumcision was to the Jews, baptism is to our children. And for this reason, the Apostle Paul calls baptism the circumcision of Christ, Colossians 2, verse 11. There are three uh, subjects we want to deal with in this uh, article. The first is the, what the article has to say about the biblical practice of baptism. The second is the significance of baptism. 
And the third is the errors of the Anabaptists. So we begin with the biblical practice. The confession has five things to say, I think, about this um, matter of the biblical practice of baptism. First of all, the confession speaks of doing it with pure water. In the first line of the second paragraph, he has commanded all those who are his to be baptized with pure water. Now that is, I think, in the first place, an allusion to uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 25, where the prophet says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. We're going to be coming back to that uh, verse in Ezekiel and the couple of verses that follow it as well, so I won't uh, refer to that verse anymore right now, but simply to point out that the word pure is, corresponds to the word clean there in Ezekiel 36, and the idea, of course, is that only that which is clean can make us, who are by nature unclean, clean. We need the clean blood of our Lord Jesus Christ to wash us from the filthiness of our sins. And the point that the confession is making here is probably a point against the Roman Catholics who had added so many other things to the rite of baptism that it was hardly recognizable anymore as the rite which the apostle which our Lord had instituted and the apostles had practiced in the early years of the uh, New Testament church. The, the point is not just that clean water is to be used, but that it's the only element to be used. All the other accretions of the ages that the Roman Catholic Church had uh, added to baptism uh, don't belong there. It's a very simple rite. There's one thing only that's necessary for this, one element only that's necessary for proper baptism, and that is water. So that's the first thing. It should be done with water, and nothing else should be added to the rite, like oil and salt and, and uh, signs of the cross and, and many other things. The second point which the confession makes about the practice of baptism is that it is to be in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is according to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 28, verse 19. Go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you uh, look at the book of Acts in this regard, you will see that in the book of Acts, there are a number of passages where the scriptures speak of baptizing in the name of Christ. So on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to those who asked him what they should do, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you have similar passages in Acts 8, verse 16, Acts 10, verse 48, and Acts 19, verse 5. So the apostles apparently sometimes practiced baptizing in the name of Jesus. But the church has throughout the, uh, the 
centuries used the Trinitarian formula given by our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 28. And partly this is probably due to the fact that the church found it necessary to uh, distinguish proper baptism from the baptism of false teachers and false sects. Sects who denied the Trinity, both in the early years of the church in the New Testament and at the time of the Reformation. And we find the same necessity today also in regard to various sects which do not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. The point which the confession is making here, I think, is that anyone who does not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity cannot uh, uh, give a proper baptism. But also, I think this, that in baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we uh, are also confessing that uh, baptism, the real baptism in Christ, is a Trinitarian work. It's not exclusively a work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you remember the form for baptism that we used to use. Um, it has a paragraph in it that goes like this. When we are baptized in the name of the Father, God the Father witnesses and seals to us that he makes an eternal covenant of grace with us and adopts us for his children and heirs and therefore will provide us with every good thing and avert all evil or turn it to our profit. And when we are baptized in the name of the Son, the Son seals unto us that he washes us in his blood from all our sins, incorporating us into the fellowship of his death and resurrection, so that we are freed from all our sins and accounted righteous before God. In like manner, when we are baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit assures us by this holy sacrament that he will dwell in us and sanctify us to be members of Christ, applying unto us that which we have in Christ namely the washing away of our sins and the daily renewing of our lives, till we shall finally be presented without spot or wrinkle among the assembly of the elect in life eternal. And if you look again at the article of the confession that we're considering tonight, you'll notice that the confession makes a point of mentioning Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in its discussion of baptism. So that's the second thing that the Confession says. It should be in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The third thing, which is something that the Confession more suggests rather than teaches explicitly, is that baptism should be by sprinkling. It does this in two places, actually, in the article. In the middle of the second paragraph, first of all, so does the blood of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, internally sprinkle the soul, cleanse it from its sins, and regenerate us. And then again, in the fourth paragraph, the second uh, part of that paragraph, the second line from the end, rather, nor does baptism avail us only at the time when the water is poured upon us and received by us, but also through the whole course of our life. So it speaks not of being immersed in the water, but water sprinkled on us or water poured 
upon us. Baptists like, of course, to argue that Romans 6 teaches us really that we should be immersed. We are buried with him by baptism. But if uh, that speaks of immersion, then there are many other passages of the scriptures which speak of sprinkling. Speak of sprinkling as a legitimate sign of cleansing from sin, and speak of sprinkling, in fact, in connection with the application of the blood of Christ to us. We're going to refer to a number of passages here. First of all, Leviticus 16, verses, verse 19. These are a couple of passages from the law. There are many references to sprinkling in the law, but just a couple of passages from the law which speak of sprinkling and show us that sprinkling was a legitimate sign of cleansing. In that passage, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. That's talking about the altar. And in Numbers 8, verse 7 as well, Numbers 8, verse 7, we have another reference to sprinkling in connection with the anointing of the Levites. He says there, Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them, sprinkle water of purification on them, and let them shave all their body, and let them wash their clothes, and so make themselves clean. In other words, they were cleansed by sprinkling. They did not have to be immersed. There are a couple of passages also in the prophets. Isaiah 52, verse 15 is one of these passages. Isaiah 52, verse 15, where uh, God speaks through the prophet and says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. That is, the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of God, of whom that passage speaks. He shall sprinkle many nations. And of course, in the passage in Ezekiel, we have a kind of extended explanation of this idea of sprinkling. And that's a very helpful passage then in this regard. Notice what he says there in verses 25, 26, and 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. And he's talking about the New Testament times, of course. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. And then notice what this sprinkling does in the following verses. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. That's the first thing, cleansing from filthiness. The second thing, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's the second thing. And in verse 27, the third thing. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. All this happens through the sprinkling of clean water by the uh, prophet whom God is going to send. And in the New Testament, we have two more passages that talk about sprinkling in connection now with the blood of Christ itself. 
Hebrews 12, verse 24 is one of them. The sentence begins actually in verse 22, so we'll read the beginning of the sentence there. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. And then jumping down to verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And finally, in 1 Peter 2, 1 verse 2, where Peter is addressing the um, people to whom his letter is written, and he says to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So if immersion is a legitimate sign of, uh, for baptism, because of Romans 6, then certainly sprinkling also is a legitimate sign for baptism according to these passages of Scripture. P.Y. de Young, in his commentary on the Belgic Confession, says of this that the baptism signifies especially the work of the Spirit, and we are not immersed in the Spirit. Rather, the Spirit is poured out on us. a sign then of the Spirit's outpouring, as Peter says in Acts chapter 2 when he quotes the prophet Joel about God pouring out his Spirit on all his children. So that's the second thing, at least, or the third thing, it at least suggests that sprinkling is a legitimate, the legitimate mode of baptism. The fourth thing that the confession says about Baptism is that it should be by a minister. That's in the third paragraph, the first couple of lines. The ministers, therefore, on their part, administer the sacrament and that which is visible. Does not recognize as legitimate baptisms by private persons, but by those who are called and appointed by God to this work. And we see this practice, that this is the practice both in the Old and New Testament. The cleansing rites of the Old Testament were not performed by private individuals, but were performed by the anointed and appointed priests of God. And in the New Testament, baptism is not only associated with the preaching of the gospel, of which God says, how shall they preach except they be sent? And his preachers must be called and appointed by God through his church. But baptism is also administered throughout New Testament practice by the apostles and the evangelists and the preachers of the gospel, not by private persons. So that's the fourth thing. It's it's legitimately, properly done by a minister of the gospel. And the final thing that the confession says about the practice of baptism is that it should be only once. The beginning of the fourth paragraph. We believe, therefore, that every man who is earnestly studious of obtaining life eternal ought to be baptized but once with this only baptism, without ever repeating the same, since we cannot be born twice. And this, of course, is written against the uh, Anabaptists, whose error is rejected in the first few lines of of the fifth paragraph of which Anabaptists, the Confession, says they are not content with the one only baptism they have once received. 
They rejected Roman Catholic baptism. That was a step too far for our fathers at the time of the Reformation. They were sharply critical of the Roman Catholic Church, sharply critical of the Roman Catholic Church's rite of baptism as they practiced it. They were not afraid to call the Roman Catholic Church a false church, but they did not want to reject everything that that church had done for centuries and the baptisms they had performed for generations of believers. Perhaps the time has come for Reformed churches to reconsider this question. But at the time of the Reformation, our fathers felt that it was not good to reject what the Roman Catholic Church had done in this regard. So those are the five things that the Confession has to say about the practice of baptism. With pure water, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by sprinkling, by a minister of the Gospel, and only once. We turn our attention now to the significance of baptism. And you may have noticed as we were reading through the article that the Confession deals with this subject of the significance of baptism throughout the article, really especially in the first three paragraphs. And so as we're looking at this, what I want to do is first review what the Confession says in each of these first three paragraphs, and then kind of sum it all up. In the first paragraph of the article, it says four things that are very closely related, and these four things, in fact, are so closely related that you can't really talk about one without talking about the next, and you can't talk about that without talking about the next one. They're, they're very closely tied together. What it says there at the end of that first paragraph is that by this baptism we are received into the church of God. That's first. As with circumcision in the Old Testament, When the male children of the people of God in the Old Testament were circumcised, they were received to be among the people of God. And when Gentiles wanted to be part of the people of God in the Old Testament and worship along with the people of God and receive, for example, the Passover and such ceremonies, they too had to be circumcised. It was a sign of being received to the company of God's people to the covenant community. And baptism is the same. Baptism signifies our reception into the church of God to be a part of the covenant community as it exists on earth. It's very important, I think, to recognize here that what the confession is saying is that baptism signifies this. It receives us into the church as, as it exists on earth, but it does not receive us into necessarily into the real body of Christ, the body of Christ as it shall be, the number of the elect. Just as circumcision did not necessarily mean that all Israelites were true Israel, as Paul says in Romans 9, So baptism, though it makes us members of the church on earth, does not necessarily mean that everyone who is baptized is a true Christian and regenerated. 
We are received then into the church of God on earth. But in this then being received into the church of God on earth, we are, as the confession says next, separated from all other peoples and strange religions. Baptism means that we are no longer of the world, that we have a new citizenship, that God has made a division between his people and the world, that he has brought his people out of the world and made of them a people that is different from the world. And so this baptism sets us apart from all other people of the world. But it sets us apart, and here we proceed then to the third thing that baptism signifies. It separates us from all other peoples of the world and marks us then as belonging to God. By baptism... We receive a sign that we belong to God, that we are not uh, adherents of any other religion on this world, in this world, that we are not uh, worshipers of any other God, that we belong to the one God who created heaven and earth and who has saved us by the shedding of the blood of his sin, of his son. And therefore, also, baptism testifies to us that he will forever be our gracious God and Father. It testifies to us. Notice that. It doesn't say it testifies to the world. It testifies to us that God will forever be our gracious God and Father. He has received us into his family. So that's what the the first paragraph says about the significance of baptism. But let's proceed now to the second paragraph. And this again is found at the end of the paragraph. The blood of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, internally sprinkles the soul. The the confession is talking here about the significance of baptism. Baptism signifies to us that as water washes away the filth of the body when poured upon it, so does the blood of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit internally sprinkle the soul. So baptism washes, water baptism, external baptism, washes away the filth of the body. Internal baptism, the baptism in Christ's blood, washes away the filth of the soul, cleanses it from its sins, regenerates us from children of wrath. Remember Titus 3, where it's called the washing of regeneration. Regenerates us from children of wrath, unto children of God, delivers us from the power of the devil. We were in bondage under sin, but Christ has regenerated us and washed us from our sins. 
And we are therefore delivered from the one who has the power of sin, to whom we were subjected. We are no longer children of wrath, but children of God. And ushers us into the spiritual land of Canaan, into the kingdom of heaven. This is what baptism signifies to us. Cleansing from our sins, regeneration unto children of God, deliverance from the power of the devil, and ushering into the kingdom of heaven. And in order to bring this home to us, the confession uh, refers indirectly to 1 Corinthians 10. It says at the end of that paragraph, by the sprinkling of the precious blood of the Son of God, that baptism um, itself, that is baptism with water, does not cleanse us, but the sprinkling of the precious blood of the Son of God, who is our Red Sea, through which we must pass to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh, that is the devil, and to enter into the spiritual land of Canaan. That's an allusion to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and following. Let's turn there for a moment and look at that passage. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and following. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual drink, food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So notice what he says there. He says that all those people of Israel who came out of Egypt and who passed through the Red Sea and who walked under the cloud, the cloud of God's glory, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. They all received these signs then. The manna and the water from the rock and the baptism of passing through the sea. But, notice verse 5 also, with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So Christ is our Red Sea through whom we pass in order to be washed from our sins and delivered from the power of the devil and ushered into the kingdom of heaven. And then also in paragraph 3, the confession speaks of the significance of baptism. The ministers, therefore, on their part, administer the sacrament and that which is visible. But our Lord gives that which is signified by the sacrament, namely the gifts and invisible grace. And they, these gifts, then, are outlined here, washing, cleansing, and purging our souls of all filth and unrighteousness. We've already talked about that renewing our hearts and filling them with all comfort, giving unto us a true assurance of his fatherly goodness, putting on us the new man and putting off the old man with all his deeds. All these things then baptism signifies. If you take all these things together from these three paragraphs, 
I think there are really three main ideas that the confession is getting at. First of all, regeneration and sanctification. Baptism signifies regeneration and sanctification. Secondly, it signifies membership in the body of Christ, membership in the church, citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And thirdly, it signifies belonging, body and soul, to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Those, I think, are the three things that the confession emphasizes in these this lengthy discussion of the significance of baptism. Now we come finally to the uh, subject of infant baptism. And this is addressed in the last paragraph of the article where the fathers reject the error of the Anabaptists, the errors of the Anabaptists. First of all, not being content with the one only baptism they have once received, And secondly, condemning the baptism of the infants of believers. We've talked about the first. We want to talk briefly about the second. The confession presents to us here, I think, four arguments for the baptism of the infants of believers. And we'll go through them in the order they're given here. The first thing the confession says is we believe that the children of believers ought to be baptized and sealed with the sign of the covenant as the children in Israel formerly were circumcised upon the same promises which are made unto our children. That's the first argument. The point which the confession is making here is that circumcision was a sign of God's promise in the Old Testament. A sign of the promise that he made to Abraham. I will be your God and the God of your children. That was its significance. That's what it meant. I will be your God and the God of your children. It didn't mean I will make you a citizen of the nation of Israel on earth. It meant I will be your God and the God of your children. And when the New Testament came, God did not truncate that promise and begin to declare simply, I will be your God, but omit the children of believers. This is why the Apostle Peter says in Acts 2.39, the promise is unto you and to your children and to all who are afar off even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And this is why the Apostle Paul spoke the promise of God to the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, saying, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, and your house. The promise of God continues in the New Testament. That same promise which he made to Abraham. But the sign of circumcision may not continue into the New Testament. We cannot continue to circumcise our children in the New Testament as a sign of that promise of God. And we cannot do that because that was a bloody sign, as the first paragraph of the article says. 
We believe and confess that Jesus Christ, who is the end of the law, has made an end by the shedding of his blood, of all other sheddings of blood which men could or would make as a propitiation or satisfaction for sin. And that he, having abolished circumcision, which was done with blood, has instituted the sacrament of baptism instead thereof. These two signs mean the same thing. Circumcision of the flesh is a sign of the circumcision of the heart, the cleansing of the heart from all that is evil, the replacing of the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And baptism is a sign of the cleansing of our souls, of our hearts, of our lives by the blood of Christ. In fact, that blood of circumcision was a sign of the blood of Christ, which has now been replaced by water. So the promise is the same, but the sign has to change because shedding of blood is no longer appropriate. Christ's blood has been shed once for all for the forgiveness of sins. That's the first argument that the confession makes. The second argument that the confession makes is that Christ has shed his blood no less for the washing of the children of believers than for adult persons. Christ has shed his blood for the washing of the children of believers. Jesus said, of such is the kingdom of heaven. He gave to children of eight days old in the New Testament the sign of the washing in his blood, the sign of circumcision. He said, through that sign of circumcision, I shed my blood for these children. His blood was shed for, it's not enough to say simply for believers, but his blood was shed for the elect. And those elect include the children of believers, infants, and infants who die, who die even in infancy. The promise of God then is spoken for the children of believers. Christ shed his blood to fulfill that promise of God. So that's the second, the second argument. The third argument is that they were partakers of the sacrament of Christ's suffering and death in the sacrifice of the Old Testament. Therefore, they ought to receive the sign and sacrament of that which Christ has done for them as the Lord commanded in the law that they should be made partakers of the sacrament of Christ's suffering and death shortly after they were born. Now, the first thought I had about that was that that was probably a reference to Leviticus 12, verses 6 to 8. Leviticus 12, verses 6 to 8. There we have this uh, right commanded. When the days of her purification, that is the new mother's purification, are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, 
and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who has born a male or a female. And there's reference to that in Luke chapter 2 with regard to Mary. Luke chapter 2, verse 24. Where we read this, uh, we should begin at verse 22. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Mary and Joseph performed this ceremony of Leviticus 12 after the birth of Jesus. And there's a temptation to take that as the reference here. But the sacrifice, according to Leviticus 12, was for the mother, not for the child. And so I think that our fathers would have recognized that and would instead have fixed on what the Luke 2, verse 23 says. They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And that's a reference to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13, verses 12 and 13. Beginning in verse 11, It shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers, and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, so the firstborn of all animals, the males shall be the Lord's. The males, but the, every firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. The donkey was unclean, and so the donkey could not be presented to the Lord. If you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn among the sons of man among your sons, you shall redeem. So they were, the firstborn sons were also the Lord's and were to be redeemed, Exodus 12, or 13 says. But notice then what verse 2 of that same chapter says. God spoke to Moses saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast. It is mine. So not only do you have the redemption of the firstborn by the giving of a lamb in place of that firstborn, but you also have an emphasis in verse 2 on this being the firstborn who opens the womb. That is, the, the firstborn who prepares the way for all the children who are to follow and is a sign then of all the children. There is to be a sacrifice made then for the firstborn, which is a sign of a sacrifice being made for all the children, and it is the redemption of all these children that the lamb signifies. I think that's what our confession is talking about here. And when that lamb was sacrificed for the firstborn, given for the firstborn, 
then that lamb showed that Christ shed his blood for the children. They received, they were made partakers of the sacrament of Christ's suffering and death shortly after they were born by offering for them a lamb, which was a sacrament of Jesus Christ. That's the third argument. And the fourth is that baptism is called the circumcision of Christ in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, where Paul says in him, beginning at verse 11, in him you were also circumcised. He's talking to Gentiles. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So Christ was circumcised. He has circumcised his people from both Jews and Gentiles by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. And he has buried themselves with him in baptism, buried with him in baptism. That flows right on from the circumcision. You were circumcised and therefore you were buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So those are the four arguments that our confession presents for infant baptism. Now a couple of things about this, yeah, by way of conclusion. First of all, notice that in all the talk about the significance of baptism that you find throughout this article, it talks about what God does, not about what we do. We are received into the church of God. By whom? By Christ himself. We are separated from all other people and strange religions, that we may wholly belong to him whose mark and ensign we bear. By whom? By Christ. Which serves as a testimony to us that, who will, that he will forever be our gracious God and Father. Who gives the testimony? Our God and Father. It is Christ who is our Red Sea and cleanses our souls from sin. It is God speaking in our baptism. God speaks to us. It's not we speaking. It's not we declaring our faith in Christ. It is God giving us the visible word of his promise. God saying, I will be your God and the God of your children. Baptism is a sign of the promise of God. And that's why our confession then says in the last part of the fourth paragraph, neither does this baptism avail us only at the time when the water is poured upon us and received by us, but also through the whole course of our life. We do not look back to a time when we confessed our faith and received the sign of baptism as a sign of that confession of faith. We look back to our baptism as a sign of the promise of God, as God speaking his promise to us. 
And we take hold of that, especially in times of temptation. As the speaking of God's promise to us. The Westminster Confession has some good material on that subject in two places. First is in the Confession itself, in chapter 28, paragraph 6, where it just makes this point. Chapter 28, paragraph 6, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet notwithstanding by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Spirit to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. I think that phrase, in his appointed time, is especially important here. What the Westminster Confession is saying is that the grace doesn't necessarily come immediately upon the uh, administration of the sacrament. It comes at God's appointed time, according to the counsel of his will, and to those to whom that grace properly belongs, that is, the elect. And so we can look to that baptism at any time and receive grace from it. The second place is in the larger catechism, question and answer 167. And this is quite lengthy, but it's an important statement, I think. How is our baptism to be improved by us? Or you could say, how is our baptism to be used? The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation and when we are present at the administration of it to others. By serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby, and our solemn vow made therein. By being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism and our engagements, that word engagements means promises, by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized, for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace, and by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness, as those that have therein given up their names to Christ, and to walk in brotherly love, as being baptized by the same Spirit into one body. The baptism, many years after we have been baptized, can still administer grace to us. As we look back and say, God spoke to me, His promise, in baptism. I have received that promise unto salvation. And I can look back to my baptism as God's unbreakable promise to me. Baptism is profitable for us all through our lives. May God bless us with his word.